0: Psalm number three. And this is uh, continuing on in our series, Loving the Psalms, Loving the Psalms. And this, this series is really all about that we would not just love the Psalms, that's obviously important, but to love the God revealed in the Psalms and to sing these praises to him. Because uh, I think the thing is, if we don't know how these things relate to God and to Christ, and how we are praising God in the midst of even a psalm like Psalm 3, as we'll look at in a minute. We will drift from singing these psalms. I know there's always going to be psalms that people sing, Psalm 100. There's certain psalms, uh, Psalm 2. They're very obviously relating to Christ, Psalm 110. But there are certain ones like this one. It may not jump out at you how this relates to Christ at all. Yet you'll see the reference to David, but you might only stop there. And if we, if we don't see how it relates to Christ, our greater David, we won't sing the psalms. Because there's nothing better that has ever been written to sing than these psalms. So far in our series, we've seen Psalm 1, which the Psalter really introduces us to this perfect man. And who's the perfect man? Christ. And then we see in Psalm 2, we're introduced to his kingdom. What do we see in Psalm 3 then? Basically the inner life or the struggles or the torments that the suffering servant has to deal with. Yes, it is immediately dealing with King David and what he went through. But remember, David is a type of Christ who would come. And as we look at the psalm, dealing with challenge in the life of David, it may not just stop with David and the David who is to come, the greater David. May it also teach us how to deal with our own trials, or enemies who would rise up against us in seeking to serve the Lord. How could it point to Christ this, this psalm, and that's what we're gonna look at here this evening, and teach us as his people? Because Christ faced certain troubles in his life. David did, and so will we. I'm certain, I don't mean certain particular ones, I mean that they're gonna happen. You live long enough, You'll face trials, you'll face difficulties. And so that's why the sermon this evening is called Certain Helps for Certain Troubles. Certain Helps for Certain Troubles. So let us read now God's holy word. We're gonna read now from Psalm number three. Let us hear God's word. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise against me. Many are they who say of me, There is no help for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me. My glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Selah, and may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and his infallible word. Earlier we read from Second Samuel. 2 Samuel, you'll probably notice as you go through a lot of the Psalms, not all of them have these little bits of information, but some of them do. And I think it's important that when we go through the Psalms, it's there for a reason. It's there to help us to understand this particular Psalm. Some historical context has been given to us. This is when David fled from his home. Now, we have to remember as well, Absalom is the son of David. Imagine that within your own home, your own flesh and blood rising up against you, bringing rebellion. I think it's also important that we look at, if you look at Second Samuel, there's a series of victories David is having. Things are going well. If you look through Second Samuel, victory after victory after victory. But then what happens? Sin enters in. And it, it, it seems from the point of Bathsheba and then the murder to cover it up, things aren't going very well. And it's a, it's a bit like um, dominoes. One bad thing after another bad thing after another bad thing. I'm not saying that every single thing is directly linked to sin, but often when trials and difficulties come, they often come a bit like that. They come in waves. They don't often, it's in your own lives as well, I'm sure. It feels like tidal wave after tidal wave after tidal wave of difficulty comes. And there may be nothing for a long time. And this is kind of what David seems to be going through here, turmoil. A little bit before that, Absalom kills his brother, Amnon. So there's turmoil in the family. Um, And there's other difficulties they're faced there as well. And everything seems peaceful with David. And all of a sudden, there's chaos. Chaos in the kingdom, chaos in the family. One trial after another. And then you kind of ask the question, could it get any worse? And I'm sure we've had times in our own lives where we kind of go... (laughs) what's going to happen next? We're almost afraid to ask it out loud. But it can, and it does. I think one of the reasons why I'm saying this is, even for King David, could you think of anybody, there's very few people in the Old Testament you could think of, we have more respect for than King David, maybe King Solomon, maybe Abraham, but King David is a very, very important figure. Absalom, not long after being forgiven by David, Or his his killing of uh, uh, of Amnon, he gains the trust of the people, and he effectively takes the throne of David. And there's treason, and the treason comes from within his own house. And you know yourself when you get hurt from within your own home, the pain is far worse. I guess you could say, in the inner life of David, couldn't get any lower. It really couldn't get any lower. However, there's something wonderful in the middle of the psalm. No matter how bad it gets, his confidence is never extinguished in his God. But it doesn't just stop with David. It also points to the one who doesn't suffer for his own sins. He suffers for the sins of his people, the greater David, that is Christ. And it also teaches us about us. We can learn from this as well. That we, because we're in union with that greater David, we're going to face also trials and difficulties of a somewhat similar nature. So number one now in our psalm, oppression. Number one, oppression. There's a fact of life. If you live long enough, there will be difficulty. There will be opposition to the truth. There will be challenge. Verses 1 and 2 says this. Lord how they have increased. Who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who save me. There is no help for him. In God. Selah. Second Timothy 3 verse 12. Yes and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. Will suffer. Persecution. They'll suffer. Persecution. This comes after a period. We, we see you know, things are not going well for David, it seems, one thing after another. I think as well we have to realize in 2 Samuel when you're reading these things, they're a bit spaced out. But it does seem one after another. How does this relate to the world around us? Well, the world, just like Absalom, is built bent on rebellion and treason. We live in a world that loves rebellion and treason against the king of kings and the true king. As we saw earlier, it's not just a few against David; it's many. Now there are some who go after David as well, but it almost seems like everybody is out there against him. Everybody's fled away. Absalom has stolen the hearts of the people, and he's surrounded. Well, and the only thing he can do is he fled. It says in the when he fled that in in Hebrew it's almost like he bolted. That's the kind of the idea. He went immediately. It seems like he's lost it all. Now, can we think of others in the Bible who seemed like they'd lost it all? Think of Job, and it was in waves for Job as well. One minute, um, everything's going smoothly, and the next minute, family, property, and health are taken, one after another, and after another. Now, we may not see the purpose when it's going through it, and it's really horrible, But there's a good, holy, and righteous reason the Lord allows it to happen. Now the devil, when he inflicts it upon Job, he means harm. But the Lord has good, holy, and righteous reasons for these things. And trouble seems to come in waves. Not always directly because of sin, sometimes directly because of sin. But we live in a sinful world. We are sinners. And there's no escaping the suffering. There's no escaping what David is describing here. How many... They have increased who trouble me. There's no escaping that. If you live long enough in this world uh, following Christ, there will be oppression and opposition. And David feels driven from safety and he has to flee. He bolts away suddenly. Those who, and, why, uh, and, and those he's bolted away and what's the response of his enemies? There's no helping him in God. And what are they doing? They're essentially mocking him. They're taunting him. He doesn't have help in God. Why? He's running away. He's finished. He's gone. The Psalms don't just stop at David, though, they look to the greater David. Christ is really the centerpiece of the Psalms. He's the chief cornerstone of perfection. And unlike David, the greater David, Christ has not sinned. See, David was a sinner. David sinned with Bathsheba. David sinned with the murder of Uriah. He was not a perfect person. He did follow the Lord, but he, he was not a perfect person fell into all kinds of sins. But Christ did not sin, our greater David. He suffered, not for his own, but for others. So when you see this, and it does seem like David here struggling you know, because of sin and different things, Christ suffered, not for his own sin, but for the sins of whom was imputed to him. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5 says this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. He suffers for sin, but not his own. The sins of others. The just son of David for the unjust people of the greater David. When he comes to face the cross, he too will face this mockery. It says in Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, to scourge, and to crucify. On the third day, he will rise again. Mockery. It's not an easy thing to deal with. Matthew 27, verses 42 and 44. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Very similar to what's being said here. There is no help for him in God cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. And even the robbers, they're being, they're being crucified and they, you know, it's almost like they have no shame. They're being punished for their, their sins. And what are they doing? They're joining in with the mocking. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for God, him in God. And it's not just Christ who faces opposition. Now, Christ above all faced more opposition than we'll ever face in this world. It's his people. It's his people. If you follow Christ in this world, you will be mocked. You will be ridiculed. You will be reviled. But what did Jesus say about this? If you are willing to endure the mockery of this world, blessed are those, Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Doesn't it seem like such a strange thing to say? Hey, you're being persecuted. Rejoice. It a, somebody's treating you horrible. I mean, you know, like, you know, there's these anti bullying campaigns. And you, could you imagine somebody comes to you I'm being bullied. You go, well, hey, you know, celebrate. It's funny, you think you're crazy. But why can we rejoice going through the suffering? Because grief is your reward in heaven. That's why. It's not because your life is easy here. Your life isn't easy here at all. But great is your reward in heaven. Because they persecuted the prophets beforehand. And the persecution. And the fact that you are being mocked. And willing to endure mocking for the sake of Christ. Is another reason to celebrate. Because it's another evidence that you truly belong to him. If you are mocked for the cause of Christ. Rejoice. It's a reason for rejoicing. Because you are. You've been brought into that, not just the blessings of being in Christ, but in this world, we'll suffer as well. So number one, oppression. Number two now, protection. Number two, protection. There is sure and certain oppression in this world, but there's also sure and certain protection for the believer. I say for the believer. In the Lord. Uh, verse 3 says this, first half of verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me. You are a shield for me. The Lord promises to be a shield to Abraham, later Abraham. It says in Genesis 15:1, after these things, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham, I am your shield. Your exceedingly great reward, your shield. Now, how do you have the shield? Uh, Paul writes to the Ephesians in in six verse sixteen. Ephesians six verse sixteen. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. That might sound like this one's different from the other, but it's really not. We take hold of our shield, who is God, by faith. That's the instrument of laying hold upon him. So if we have faith, we have God. We have trust in God. And what does a shield do? If, you are, if you're in battle and you have a shield, I don't know if you ever watched those old documentaries about ancient battles. Often the way that they would have victory is how tight was their unit of shields together and it was the only way that you'd be protected. I think today we think, ah, shield, that's not so great. We think of like an armored wall. If you had bulletproof glass or something, that's impressive. But a shield, think about it at that time. Protection. Protects from the weapons of the enemy. And a shield was often the difference between winning the battle and losing the battle. David's shield not just when t- things were going well. We've just seen, everything seems to be like domino effects. It's going really, really badly. But in the midst of what may, we may make us feel like quitting and throwing the towel. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me. not amazing? With all that's going on, he says, you are a shield for me. What, what does he need a shield from? Verse 2 talks about the mocking that he's facing. The attacks of the enemy. And what, do, what, what does ridiculing do? What does mocking do? There is no help in God. Give up. There's even a phrase in Hebrew that has the kind of sense of dropping your hands. And there's also another sense in which we drop the head. And we have it in English as well. He we dropped the head. Sometimes you'll even see it um, in football matches. You say, oh, they've dropped the head. You can just tell by posture. They've just given up. Now, What is he saying here in verse three? My glory and the one who lifts up the head. My glory and the one who lifts up my head. See, mocking from the enemy makes you want to give up, drop the hands and just quit. I don't want to deal with this opposition. It's too difficult. I don't want it. But God is, he says, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. It's the shame, isn't it? It's the shame that makes us want to quit. It's the shame of the mockery and the reviling, and the fiery darts that come from the enemies of David. David's glory—where is it? It's in God. My glory, he says. The Lord Jehovah is his glory. But think about this: if our glory was our achievements, it'd be like those dusty old trophies from ten years ago. Oh, they look impressive when you first win them, but then they look—they're in the trophy cabinet. And you say, well, when was the last time you won that competition? Ten years ago. Pfft. Doesn't seem so impressive anymore, does it? It loses its shine. But this is a glory which never diminishes. The radiance of the triumph never, ever fades. And it's far better that his glory is, comes from the Lord. No chance of this glory ever diminishing. This is a, an eternal radiance. Now, we're thinking about David. Now let's think of the greater David, that is Christ. David is a type of the Christ to come. Well, he's true God, never ever ceasing to be how uh, never ceasing to be God. So you might think, well, okay, Jesus is true God and true man. How can he be so dependent? Okay? How can he be so dependent? But we must remember when Jesus came into this world, when the Christ came into this world, he came in under the law. And he came to suffer as man. It says in Galatians 4.4, 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And then under the law, he learned obedience. It says in Hebrews 5.8, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. This very much relates to Christ who suffered. Now, when David was writing this, he was speaking of a Christ who would suffer later, but he sp- speaks now of Christ who has suffered. And this is what is so amazing about the incarnation, the word becoming flesh. The fact that the infinite one could assume human flesh and suffer as a creature I think we've kind of lost that sense of the amazingness of that but the infinite I think when we think of infinite we struggle to think about it I was talking to my girls there yesterday and I was talking about if you could go a billion miles that way would God still be there if you go 10 billion miles that way would God still be there multiply that by 10 billion again would God still be there He's without limit. And that same God assumed human flesh and suffered. He suffered. And he came into this world to suffer and depend on his Father and the Holy Spirit. He came in the form of a servant. He was truly God, but also came in the form of a servant. It says in Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant or a servant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And what's the amazing thing of the suffering servant of Christ? He depended on God, his Father. Remember what he said when he's going away, I'm going to my God and your God, my father and your father. He served the father perfectly. But while David says my glory, it's really a glory that comes from God. When Christ says it, it's really really his glory. The same glory from the father and the son. The, the Son has this eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. And as His radiance, His glory between the Father and the Son, there's no diminishing. If you think of a, a flashlight and you, f- you shine it on the wall and you notice it kind of fades as it passes through the air and you see it at the back. But this is an eternal relationship. The radiance from God the Father to God the Son is exactly the same. Because it's an eternal relationship. It says in Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3. Who being the brightness of his glory. See the brightness of his glory. This light never fades. This radiance never fades. My glory. And the one who lifts up my head. Christ's glory is the brightness of God's. The Father's glory. And as such. Because of this, he never, ever gave in to hopelessness. He never put down the head. His head was always lifted up. Because it's either shame and defeat or glory and hope. Those are the two options before us. So we've looked at oppression, protection. Number three, intercession. Intercession. When we come to God for help in the name of Christ, the greater David, seeking his glory and his will, he hears us in our time of need. And why does he hear us? Because of Christ. In our trial and difficulty. Maybe the trial and difficulty is a phone call and somebody's ill in the home. Maybe the trial and difficulty is someone, some loved one, has fallen into embarrassing, serious sin. But whatever the trial and difficulty is, God is the one who sustains us through all these difficulties. It may be a a trusted friend who no longer is so trusted. In the place of holiness, God responds. Verse four, I cry to the Lord with my voice. And he heard me from his holy hill. His holy mountain, Zion, where his blessed presence is. And he he responds from a place of holiness. Because he is the one who sustains all things. He is the one who maintains all things. As David can cry out to God because he's a greater one to represent him. The Christ, the greater David who would come. That is the Christ now, as we think of our God, who is a God who hears in Jesus Christ, should we be afraid when difficulties come? When many are they who rise up against me. It's not just a few. These are huge challenges. Many are they, not just some, many. There's many here that say, of me, there is no help for him. In God, remember this is this is God's chosen king. He's done for. That's that's the idea. Here. The mocking is here, and of course it relates to Christ as well. But because He hears, think of it. He's our eternal shield, and this shield is our infinite God. Can you imagine having an infinite shield around you? What could possibly touch you? If we come clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ, then he hears us. Do we have anything to fear? I cried to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. Christ, the greater David, intercedes for us and responds to our prayer, especially if we come to him with his word and his will. Now, what happens when we trust him? Now, I know we're going to struggle. I know we're going to have difficulty. I know I don't typically have nights of sleeplessness, but I still remember years ago, the night before my Hebrew exam, I slept for two hours. I'm not somebody who typically gets worked up about things. I'm really not. And I I had a lot more sympathy for people. There are some people who won't sleep a wink all night because they're so worried. Worry robs us of sleep. Good quality, sleep. But what happens when we have more assurance and confidence in the Lord? Verse 5 it says this: I lay down and slept. And I know we might read that as isn't that nice poetic language? It's not. If you're robbed of sleep, if you're robbed of comfort and confidence, this is soothing balm to your soul. I lay down and slept. I know many people who've got, uh, can only sleep a few hours a night. Some people can only sleep what, three, four hours a night. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. How can he sleep with all the opposition that David is facing? How can he, how can he lay down? Everything going wrong because he's not lost confidence in his God. He's not lost confidence in his God. Even though it is his own son, his flesh and blood has risen up against him, he sleeps knowing that the protection comes from God and from God alone. We will all lose sleep at times, but when we do, May we read this psalm if we're facing difficulty. If the difficulty is causing us trouble, verse 6, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people. The number doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many troubles you're facing today. Get a calculator out and multiply by a billion. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people. He's saying, look, there's an even greater number of people coming up against me, who have set themselves against me all around and will not be afraid. Why am I not afraid? Why is David not afraid? Because God is his shield. his exceedingly great reward. And when God said that to Abraham in Genesis 15 verse one, isn't that comforting? He comes to comfort. He comes to remove our anxiety. Look through the New Testament. How many times does Jesus say, do not be afraid? Because it's our natural inclination to be afraid. To be anxious. And sometimes, how much we'll lose sleep, it depends on our personality. Some of us are more inclined to it than others. But the spiritual cure is seeing the greatness of our God. And the goodness of our God. And the God who hears. See, we can run to so many remedies when things are going wrong. Sometimes they're sinful remedies. I'm saying to run to prayer. When something goes wrong, have a natural inclination to fall to your knees. And it'll be some of those blessed times in your life, dear friend. God wants you close to Him, to have confidence in Him, because He is the one who fills heaven and earth. And isn't that amazing? He, He wants a closer relationship with His people, and He's infinite, and He's all sufficient in Himself but he wants you to trust him more than you do right now. Isn't that amazing? Just the little specks of dust that we are. He cares that we trust him more, that we see him for who he is, that we would not be afraid in the midst of enemies because he's far greater than any of our enemies. A final point is, is domination. Domination. So we've looked at oppression, protection, intercession, Finally, number four is domination. Uh, verse seven says this: Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. David, in crying out for help, he's really seeking God's will. Do you ever see, in seeking for deliverance, he's also seeking for God's will. You could also say, in a way, he's praying Genesis 3:15. The, the, the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. That the, that the enemy would be placed under his feet. God is more dominant in saving, or evidently dominant, you could say, in saving David from the hands of the enemies. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. And as The kingdom of God advances more evidently. What will happen? More people are saved. But the kingdom advances, and more and more enemies of God are placed under the feet of Christ. It says in Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2 The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool, your enemies. Your foots do. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, this is a current, present day reality today. It will get more obvious in the future. Now, we might say, well, how can we see the kingdom of God advancing? We may ask that question. Like, things seem pretty bad, don't they? Well, how many Christians were there day on the day of Pentecost? How many Christians are there today? I know at times things are maybe, it looks like it's two steps forward, 1.5, 1.9 steps backwards or whatever it is. But the kingdom does go forward and advance. When Christ was upon the earth, the kingdom largely, I know there was some Jews in different parts of the Roman Empire, but they were largely in Judea, a small little postage stamp of an area. Now there's Christians all over the world kingdom is advancing. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 26 and 27, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet, but he says all things are put under him. It is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. He has put all things under his feet. Now there's been defeat for the enemy at the cross. There's a picture here that might strike us. For you've struck all my enemies on, on the cheekbone. Well, it might sound very violent. It's like, or very um, visual, or what's the word? But this is really a picture of the enemies. Of is almost like they're animals. What does an animal have? Teeth. Teeth. You know, if you have a, if you're facing a lion and there's a lion in the room chasing you around the place. But he loses his teeth for whatever reason. He's not as scary anymore. Those teeth are the weapons of the enemy. And what has God done with the weapons of the enemy? You have, notice how it's already something that's happened. You have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. David is saying, they're going to certainly lose. Their fate is sealed. Now we pray for anybody who is on the seat of the serpent's side that they will trust in Jesus Christ, and come over to the victorious side. But we know how it's going to end. We know how it's going to end. So this is a picture, really, of the, the weapons of the enemy being removed, taken away. Again, if, if, you, if you're like, if you find a wolf and his teeth are gone, he's no longer as scary. The weapons are gone, defeated. Now the gospel in our battle with the enemies, is the ultimate, the ultimate weapon. It is the the, the, the sword of the Lord is the word of the Lord, because we fight in a, a battle. We, we said earlier, our, the 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 shield of faith, the shield of faith, and in all this, as the, the kingdom advances. All things are placed under his feet. God is glorified. God is seen to get the victory. And what you'll notice this as well when you look through at the, New Test, or the Old Testament, especially sometimes in the New Testament. When God saves one group, he judges another side by side. And in, in bringing judgment upon one group, he's really rescuing his people. Sometimes he'll talk about it, the day of the Lord will come. But Yet there's a very hopeful passage right in the middle. it. why is that? Because he delivers his people out of the midst of the day of wrath and the day of darkness. But it's a day of light for his people who've trusted in him. That's what's gonna happen at the end of time. Verse eight, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. No matter what we're facing in this world, if we are in Jesus Christ, we have the blessing of Almighty God. Our greater David suffered under his enemies for you and for me. He suffered that we would have life. He suffered that this blessing, see that salvation? Salvation belongs to the Lord. And it's only because of what Christ has done. It wouldn't be possible without that. God will never set aside his justice for you. Justice was satisfied in Christ. In that one who is true God and true man, the greater David, the one who endured. And as we look through this psalm, as we th- sing through this psalm, imagine what he suffered for us. He faced mocking, he faced humiliation. The King of glory, the infinite God, the one who delighted from eternity past to eternity future, he came into the sin cursed world. And he died. not that amazing? The incarnation. The incarnation is not just about a baby in a manger. The incarnation is about the infinite God. Taking on finite flesh. Suffering. Laying down his life. So that we could sleep well. And trust him. And so that when we do cry out to God. He hears us. He hears us. Without the sacrifice of Christ, he would not hear us that way. Without the sacrifice of Christ, we would have only the wrath of God. But praise be to God, he suffered for us. Praise be to God, we will, we will rejoice forever and ever because of verse eight, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Sila. Amen.